This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're incredibly fortunate to have Christian Lafer. He's from Yippie Kaye. He's the CEO, and we're going to do a little different today. He's going to tell us about his company and what it does. Christian, Great. it's all yours. Who would ever name a company Yippie Kaye, right? Yippie Kaye is an attitude of empowering people and sort of shedding light in the darkness, fighting the bad guys, making the world a better place by helping people get past all the bureaucratic obstacles to changing their community through a nonprofit. And the way that translates is whether you're starting a nonprofit or getting fundraising compliant, which is a really difficult process as well, uh, we'll get you from idea to IRS approved 501c3 in less than an hour for under $1,000, and you'll never talk to a government agent or lawyer. You know, I, I think about the folks that are out there that have intent that want to go and, and help the planet, and a great deal of those ideas, like many others, die on the kitchen table. Absolutely. And they die because they can't figure out how to get from A to B. Yep. And so you guys basically take out that barrier to entry for a budding 501c3. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at all the great movements in history, there's been a little bit of moral outrage to power them. And with this one, uh, back in 2009 or so, 10, I volunteered to help uh, start a 501c3. And, you know, how difficult can that be? Give me that paperwork. I, I welcome the challenge. Well, when I got a call from the IRS or a letter from the IRS and called in and they said, oh, don't worry, it'll take about a year for your 501c3 to, to get approved, um, I just questioned what in the world, if I wanted to start a used car lot, it would be 20 minutes at the Secretary of State's website and 50 or 100 bucks. And I couldn't imagine why even attorneys were looking at an 8, 10, 12-month cycle to get approved. And uh, so I took that letter and uh, I called about 10 or 15 extensions north and south of that phone number. And I begged, cajoled, bribed. I mean, I'd promised to send chocolates, whatever I could get out of that person on the other end of the line who was actually processing the files because it was reaching somewhere into that exempt organization's department. And at the end of the day, I put together all my research and tried it out. And we started getting approvals in 30 days for people long before there was even a company or a process or software conceived. And uh, I thought, man, this is something people could really use. You know, it's, it's interesting. We're right in the midst of Hurricane Harvey and the effects down in South Texas. And I think about all the outreach, you know, you've got athletes and luminaries raising funds. And all I can think of is like, holy smokes, the bureaucratic nightmare. Somebody raised four or five million bucks on donations. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, well, how's that working in the 501c3 space? Absolutely. And what many nonprofits are even unaware of, let alone people who want to start them, is that Say you have a little local neighborhood nonprofit, right? And you're providing some school lunches and maybe, maybe some support to people in the neighborhood. You're in Beaumont or, or you're in Port Arthur, Texas. Right now, you've got the opportunity to reach the entire world um, and, and help in the way that you know best uh, on the ground. But you are prohibited from raising money in 41 states uh, if you're not fundraising compliant, which is our other main product. Um, we can do that as well with a TurboTax-like process and get you fundraising compliant quickly and easily at about a third of the cost of an attorney. Because again, these should not be barriers to helping our neighbor, in my opinion. You know, we, we were chatting a little bit before, and we were talking about Simon Sinek and why. 
And we talk hmm. about um, tilting at windmills. And so this is a bureaucratic tilt at a windmill for mm-hmm. the nonprofit world. In your background, talk a little bit about why it's important to you to take and help these nonprofits take and grease the skids, for lack of a better term, to get compliant and be able to do their mission. Well, it's funny. Um, we hired a, a visionary friend of, of, of a friend who's, who's become a close friend of mine and advisor, Elliot Frick, uh, out in St. Louis. And he runs a marketing agency called Big Wide Sky. And I said, I need a name for this company, instantnonprofit.com, right? Needs to become something that's more expansive and can provide these multiple services. And so he said, well, forget the company and forget the products and all that stuff that you're all caught up in. We want to find out where this idea came from because these businesses are very near and dear to the heart of somebody, right? When they're, when they're born. And so they asked me about some of the battles I had been involved in and inflection points in my life. And I don't even remember having the exact conversation, but when I was eight years old, uh, and I'm telling the story, when I was eight years old, uh, my mom came home with my little sister from the doctor, and my mom was visibly shaken, pretty upset. And she sat me down and she said, you know, your sister Monique isn't speaking at nearly four, and we, we found out why. It's because she never will. She's mentally retarded, we called it back then, or developmentally disabled. And uh, I said, well, well, she seems fine to me. And I ran out to play with my friends, didn't think twice about it. But a few weeks later, my single mom, who was waitressing that day, um, had to come home from work and pick me up from school. I was in trouble for fighting and, and punching out a couple of kids in a third grade New Jersey elementary school. <laughs> and uh, the, of course, everybody, including the janitors in the principal's room, office and wants to know why. And uh, they demanded I say, I'm sorry. And I had my arms folded and I said, I'm, I'm not sorry. And I had a little twinkle in my eye and I said, those boys will never make fun of the special kids again. And I realized that day that uh, there are people in the world that need somebody to fight for them, right? Because my sister was unable to fend for herself. And I didn't realize it then, but I embarked on a whole series of battles in my life, whether it was for free market principles or for my sister or whatever other jobs I've taken, things I've done. There's always been a cause associated with them, a holy cause that was greater than me. And I figured out uh, backwards, I think I backed into this. And only after I talked to this marketing agency did I realize I had another holy cause with this company. And that was to enable every person out there who runs into the bureaucratic brick walls to make the biggest difference they can and see themselves as as great as they possibly can so that they can help their neighbor and help make this world a better place. Because if we've ever seen a time where that's needed for us to pull together and help each other, it's today. You know, I, I think about, you know, the, the before and after. So if you're a typical wannabe nonprofit and you, I have an idea, there's a cause, I can, you know, I want to put this together. Historically, how long does it take to go from conception to being approved as a 501c3? Historically, I mean, it probably reached the high in around 2014 where uh, there, were, there was actually talk among law firms. I have an article uh, saved. They were, uh, these big law firms in D.C. were talking about suing the government for violating their own guidelines that this is only supposed to take, you know, only supposed to take 250 or something days. I forget what the statute is or the guideline. And we were up to 18 months on average to approve a 501c3. I don't want to create any false hopes out there, um, but our record is nine days from somebody calling us 
to, to them getting an IRS approval for their 501c3. We generally like to say that we reduce the, the, the time taken by about 75% and the fastest approval times in the industry. And that's from the date of the call to us to IRS approval because it's not just about the IRS. There are a number of steps in this process. And if you break any link in that chain, it just causes you more delays and more uh, challenges and, and sometimes more money. Our job is to eliminate any red flags and any broken links in that process from day one. You know, for, for the folks that are listening out there, one, you know, 501c3 is just a nonprofit organization. And then I think about, so I'm, I'm a budding wannabe nonprofit and I'm faced with figuring this out on my own. And then I, I retain counsel or whatever it is somebody directs me to do to try to, what would I be looking at in general for an expense to do this? Um, you know, typically uh, you'd see three to $5,000 for um, starting a 501c3 with an attorney. We still get phone calls where people have either given an attorney money and since, you know, I don't know of any attorneys that say result guaranteed, right? You're going to you may or may not get out of the traffic ticket. You may or may not get your 501c3 by the time they run out of that $2,500 retainer. And so we get calls with people that just didn't get across the finish line two years ago. They're still taking money out of their pockets and their, and their community, you know, donors' pockets to put lunches in, in kids' mouths or, or books in their hands. Um, and uh, we have to clean up some messes sometimes, even from other online services that uh, purport to do what we do. But we have got this system greased, and uh, it's our job to kind of predict what, where the problems could lie and smooth all those things out. And that's why, uh, to date, we've only gotten top ratings with Better Business Bureau and uh, Facebook five-star reviews. We don't get fours. You know, and, I, and we've talked many different things, and I had the privilege of talking to the ladies that make this happen. And, oh, our staff is incredible. Oh, they were killer. I mean, the three ninjas, they, yeah. they really are <laughs> the good. Hero at, the hero squad. The hero squad. You know, and, and I think about, you know, you're, one, you're faster. As I understand it, you're less expensive. What, you know, typical range for somebody that would enter, you, utilize you guys to form a 501c3, what range of pricing could they look at? So the fees for our us to do this are uh, right now six hundred and seventy seven dollars for our, our part of those services or nine sixty seven, and that falls along a natural break where the IRS created a more streamlined solution for smaller nonprofits that predict or or project that they'll be under fifty thousand dollars per year in any of their first three years. And what's interesting, uh, the IRS, you know, they're 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 collectors. They know how to get money out of people. And they don't, they're not usually very ambiguous about it. You know, this, is the, this is the dollar total, um, and, and this is what you owe. With this process, they are asking for a, sort of a Boy Scouts honor uh, best guess. So if you believe that you'll be below $50,000 and you apply on that basis and you exceed your expectations, they don't even have a mechanism right now to come back for that additional fee because their fees below $50,000 are $275 to submit that file. So you have our $677 plus $275. If you're above the $50,000 per year projected, our fees are $967, you know, moderately more for, for quite a bit more work, uh, but $850 for the IRS filing fee. So it brings a $1,000, sub $1,000 proposition to around a, almost a $2,000 proposition. Um, but uh, right now, 
they just want your, your best honest guess. If you're going around buying houses for the veterans and converting them for uh, ADA use, et cetera, it's not going to fly that you're $50,000 or below. But many, many organizations do take longer to, to get up to those larger numbers. And so we generally, t- you know, we, we don't advise or influence people unduly, but um, it's like any, anything. If you're going to launch a small business, don't buy a thousand hammers for your new hardware store. You know, buy 20 and see how they go. You know, I, I think as, as, you know, one of the questions that comes to mind, you know, is obviously there's a need. There's a lot of folks that have really good intent in mind. Why doesn't everybody know about you guys or use you guys? Well, soon everyone will, I hope. Oh, uh, that's got a world you know, domination. Okay. Well, you know, I, I'm the CEO and the, I have to have some uh, irrational beliefs, but uh, we're an early stage growth mm-hmm. company. Um, I, I wouldn't quite characterize this as a startup anymore. We're, we're racking up, you know, thousands of customers at this point. But uh, uh, we are emerging growth and eventually, you know, you have to use all these different channels and different media today to to get to people. Some people, um, if you talk to a high schooler today, Facebook, they're like, Dad, you're old. My kids go, Dad, I'm not going to answer you on Facebook. That's so old school. And, you know, my mom thinks she's cool because Grammy finally got on Facebook. Uh, it's Snapchat. It's Instagram. Who knows what's next? you now have to diversify your ability to reach people and go where they are. People are abandoning TV and picking up Netflix. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know that we'll ever run a traditional TV ad um, by the time we get big enough to do traditional TV ads. Our job is to get it in front of as many people as we can. But when we do, we we do really well on, on Google paid ads, for example, because when we do get in front of people, the value proposition is clear. We talk to where people are really at not like a bunch of accountants and lawyers using stock photography and clean language. And, you know, I mean, we don't use dirty language, but, uh, you know, we don't use those stilted terms. We talk in real language to real people and help solve real problems. You know, we, we were chatting a little bit before about this notion of barrier reduction and what you're doing. And you took the, a similar approach with the structure of your company and the, the ladies that we got to chat with beforehand. Um, talk to me about that, that evolution of that thought process on how you wanted to take and structure your company to follow your belief system. Absolutely. I think it was uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes who said, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. And <laughs> I, hate to, I hate to use that example in a way, but um, I don't necessarily know what's best for this company at any given moment when asked on the spot and facing a new situation. And we're facing new situations every single day in the moment. But what I've learned is that I know the right one when I see it. And and, and I've also learned because of my amazing uh, chief operating officer, John West, uh, who you know started out as a, a Google ad vendor and, and maybe a marketing vendor and has really come to um, wrap his arms around, you know, really the majority of operational staff, uh, advertise, all that systemic stuff in the company. And John and I read Simon Sinek. We have similar beliefs that people are greater than some institutions might want to give them credit for being. Mm -hmm. And they can make decisions that suit them and also suit everyone else. And I think Adam Smith sort of believed this as well. So... We've ended up deferring by necessity often to the staff. Okay, we have this problem. You know, 
a customer complained there's a glitch in the software and most management want to go run and um, fix the problem themselves and then go tell the staff how it's going to be fixed. We have flipped that on its head. And now our first instinct, because we have learned about how capable these young, you know, these young women are that you, that you interviewed, our young staff, how capable they are to take a look at a problem and be the best ones to fix it because they are the ones that are, A, dealing with the customers, using the tools, operating the company on a day-to-day. And the brain trust that we've built, it's like a, it's like the, a computer before the internet. You might have been able to crunch some spreadsheets and things, but once these computers are all connected and people are connected, the solutions that come out of that are absolutely mind-blowing. And I don't care how smart you are, I'm not smarter than three people in my staff or five people collectively coming up with a solution for something. So, yeah, it's, it's been amazing to find some raw, talented people. I mean, we did pick some good people, but help them grow by empowering them. And sometimes it's, it's like parenting. You got to let them make a mistake and encourage them to, to continue. You, you also took the approach of sharing the financials of the company and how that had a bearing on their behavior and activity. What's your observations or impression of that initiative on your part? So, yeah, um, what we encountered was uh, both, you know, because of age, I think millennials are, um, they've grown up in a world where everything's been sold to everyone and a lot of things have come out not really like they were sold, right? Whether it's government or Wells Fargo creating fake accounts, I mean, you name the examples of the betrayal of co- corporate, government, et cetera, and, and maybe, you know, in our own lives, right? No, mm-hmm. Nobody's unscathed by this, even our, sure. own, our own families. Um, they have BS detectors. And so, and they, do, so they don't want to be considered salespeople. And they weren't hired as salespeople either. But they're really wanting a level of honesty and authenticity and integrity that's lacking in, in the world in many ways, right? Everybody's on Facebook putting on their, their best face. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like dating, and it's maybe why divorce is so high. People go out in their best, shiniest outfit to the best, shiniest restaurant. And when you know the, the diaper is flying across the living room 10 years later, things are not so rosy. And so by allowing them to... Um, to solve their own problems. And, and we have a motto in the company called make things suck less. That means for you as a staff and for us as a company and for our customers, how can we just organically continue to make things better for people? And um, part of that was sharing the financials. They have certain goals in their lives. And we sat down and thought, well, how do we connect what we want which is company growth. We want sales. We want to close. We know we have the best solution. So we're doing a favor by closing a customer to work with us instead of um, you know, the online solution or a lawyer down the street. How do we get them to do that if they don't want to sell and push things on people and rope them in and all those old tactics that just don't work anymore? And the way to do that was to share with them. Uh, they totally, they're believers, as you can tell. They, they believe that what we're doing is a good thing. But we had our finance guy come in and teach them how to read a financial, which I didn't know how to do until just a few years ago by necessity with this company, but also um, how to tie their life goals, the raise they want. Um, They want to make a certain amount of money. They want to get married, buy a house, do all those things. Those come out of financial results from this company. 
So how can they sort of choose their own adventure? Um, if they want more vacation time, how can they take care of their fellow employees? How does that impact the company? How do refunds impact the company? And what's come out of that is a set of policies that is inherently humane and loving. And our job as a company is to love people by giving them a great service, backing it up with honesty and integrity, and being the absolute best because we want to be, you know, not for any other reason, but just to serve people. And the money will come, and we've seen a lot of growth because of this philosophy. You know, I, I think about whatever you were doing before here, before this company, there's this thought process of after you went through the journey of dancing with the IRS to try to solve the 501c3 problem, and you said, there's a company in here. Take yeah. me to that thought process, and when you went home and talked to your spouse and said, "Hun, I think I'm going to do the following, what were you thinking and what was that like? Yeah, when I discovered this need... Um well, the first thing you do is you you serve the need, right? I mean, every if every bricklayer um, probably started out, you know, well, most of them probably started out because dad was a bricklayer. But um, anyone who's ever solved the problem and has any you know entrepreneurial bone in their body goes, okay, well, I'm, maybe I could make a living or make a little side hustle, make a little extra <laughs> money doing this thing. And that's exactly what I did. I started um, helping some folks get five hundred one c three. Started a little private. Uh, private school, uh, helped start another, you know, sort of a research organization and really fast approvals, right? That goes without saying. So I thought maybe I could do a little consulting around this. Then I, this information product guru thing started happening on the internet where people were like, I teach people, you know, I do videos (laughs) and sell these expensive DDDs of some of which I was buying for a thousand or $2,000, these program about about how to create a website, how to reach people online, et cetera, how to write better. I mean, copywriting, all that stuff. And I said, well, this is, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not just going to, I'm not going to do one-to-one and, and be a consultant doing 501c3s. I'll teach people how to do it themselves through a video series. And I'll never forget, I was on a plane to um, see a, a guy named Mike Koenigs out in, in San Diego. And he's one of these internet guys who, you know, he saw a need taught a bunch of people things, did the thing, and, and then created a product. And I'll never forget, he, went, he came out on stage, and I'm at this seminar about how to market things on the internet called Make Market Launch. And he, uh, he said, you too can be in the software business, even if you have absolutely no business doing so. I do not remember hardly anything that happened <laughs> after that, that weekend. But when I got on the plane to come home, I knew that uh, this was about creating a TurboTax-like solution that would just make it easy and maybe even enjoyable. Because there's a lot of things out there that will make something suck less. Mm-hmm. But if you can actually bring a little delight and sort of that mischievous, fun attitude that people are, are looking for in life, um, you could really make this thing big. And so I'll never forget um, just someone telling me that this software thing could maybe be outsourced had a, had a couple of bad starts on that, and there's a whole story there. But I realized that we could leverage technology and then caring expert customer service together to really make a difference in people's lives. And now we literally have thousands of nonprofits operating all over the world, making difference in many, many more thousands of other people's lives. And uh, man, if there is one thing that I could say, I feel like I was put on this earth to do, it's totally that. 
You know, it's, it's funny, some folks just say, you know, I want to take and have an impact on the world. I want to change the world. And you think, well, that's a pretty tall order. And I think about... And you remember that hippie song, right? There was a, I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do, so I leave it up to you. <laughs> uh, no, I don't remember that one. <laughs> that's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a mount, that's a, I think Mountain or Leslie West did that song. Oh, my. Oh, that may- Talked about all the problems of the world, but the punchline was... I don't know what to do, so I leave it up to you. But you know, anyway, you, th- you think about the people that you've run across on the entrepreneurial journey, and the the idea dies on the table. Yeah, you know, your idea could have died on the table easily. Yeah. Yep, you know, could have died when you failed with the first. I'm sure software programmer. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or two, you know, and you know, looking forward, what has you fired up now for the next year or so? What do you see coming? We've grown, um, we've gotten our systems down, and again, uh, credit to, to John West, uh, our CEO. If, if he could be here, I'd be thrilled because it's one thing to come up with the idea, but I sort of did a lot of, you've, you've met the Tasmanian devil, right? You've been around long enough to have seen yes. the original cartoons on TV, I'm sure, as I was. And there's just like a lot of spinning, you know, but probably not a lot of stuff getting done. And and having John uh, create systems for all these things, uh, now we're seeing real progress go because you systematize things. People can count on the um, level of quality that they're going to get. They can count on the experience. And why did people in the 60s when McDonald's was growing, why did they go there on road trips? They knew they could count on a clean bathroom and a consistent experience. And so... Instead of having really great results, except one or two f- apples fall off the cart, now everyone gets the same experience, high-quality experience. So just from a systemic standpoint, we are now able to go uh, scale up on fundraising compliance, which is becoming a huge problem for nonprofits. And then by customer demand, we are bringing online training for things like high-dollar fundraising um, and other other. Uh, customer needs, how to run board meetings quickly and efficiently. Those things are going to start coming about more and more because no longer do boards want to pay $5,000 for a consultant to train them for two days when there's the board turnover in the nonprofit space is incredible. But would they buy a product that teaches them how to run a board meeting efficiently, effectively, stay compliant with any you know minute keeping and all that stuff? In a, in a video product that they can use as an onboarding process for every new board member? Absolutely. Um, and training isn't our big thing, but it's a supportive thing because we want people to have a better experience once they get up and running. Uh, the other big thing that I think is happening is we're, we're watching it with fundraising compliance. The 41 states that regulate any type I mean, literally having a donate button on your page, even if you're not hitting anyone up or contacting people. The local Denver animal shelter right up the street from us who has a donate button that is connected to a cart, shopping cart looking thing, right? That has New York in the drop down along with all the other states. Hey, that comes standard. They are in violation of New York state law right now and they don't even know it because New York state regulates that if you even have a path for a resident of New York to give to you, you need to get fundraising compliant. But what happens when that little nonprofit goes to an attorney and sees that this costs $12,000, right? They're going to go right back and go, well, I hope that doesn't happen to us. But they know darn well they're non-compliant. And so um, this has been sort of a perfect storm. You've got increased enforcement. You've got these onerous laws 
you know, getting more and more serious all the time. And the third factor that makes this a perfect storm is everybody's been thrust online. These regulations were created in an era where only big outbound phone and direct mail mm -hmm. organizations, right? Jerry Lewis, Telethon, ones you've heard of. You get the Red Cross mailing in your mailbox. They've got a room full of attorneys and can afford that, even though they should be our customer. They can afford to have attorneys do this. These little nonprofits that have been all thrust online into the public arena with great opportunity attached to it by being online are also liable for some of these laws that didn't consider the internet coming along and changing everything. So what are we doing? We're using that same internet and that same technology to lower the bar so that all of these little and medium-sized organizations can get over that bar and be fully compliant, be a best practices organization that's transparent as their donors want them to be and not pay an exorbitant amount of money to do so. Our goal is to have that be, you know, to, for us to be the standard and for us to be the natural go-to for all these types of services. Because the number one mission that we have as a company is to help people stay focused on their mission of literacy, environmental, helping you know, children read, et cetera. For the folks that are out there and they go, you know, I've had this idea forever to start a nonprofit for you know, a cause that I want to support. How would they reach out to you or find you? What's, where are you at in social media? So we have a corporate website at www.heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, like superheroes, .do. Uh, it's a little unusual, heroes.do. But the easiest way, uh, and then these resolve all back to our appropriate place on our website, uh, people can go to instantnonprofit.com, and it just kind of says what it is. Um, they can go to fundraisingcompliance.com and get fundraising compliant. And those are the two main avenues that are just quick and, you know, quick and easy uh, to get to the right people and the right program for their organization. You know, we're in Denver right now. And for the folks that are listening in the area and they go, you know, we, we, we're wanting to do a fundraiser for our nonprofit. What are the chief misconceptions that they might have where they're running a foul and they didn't even know it? Well, first of all, you know, a big question is what is fundraising compliance? What is charitable solicitation as, as it's called by, you know, bureaucrats, rule makers, attorneys, uh, government. And it literally encompasses um, every type of fundraising that you could do. So an invitation to an event is a solicitation. Anything that could potentially, it's not the act of raising the money, getting the money in your bank account as a nonprofit. It's the act of even creating the path between the constituent or the resident of a state and your organization. And so um, uh, you probably heard, uh, you mentioned earlier the, the raffle laws. You know, if you're going to have a raffle, you do have to register for, for mm -hmm. running a raffle. It's essentially considered a form of gambling. Um, by the uh, by, the state and, and they regulate it, and of course these agencies, you know, they they are they are driving revenue by increased enforcement and regulating mm -hmm. these things. And so there's two sides to it. There's sort of fraud prevention. They want to have you in the database, so that when Mrs. McGillicuddy calls from from the neighborhood to see if you're a real 501c3 and if you're really helping the kids, well, they can at least verify that you've registered with the state by checking you out for fundraising registration or checking out whether you have a, a raffle uh, license. And the, the longer we have te this technology around, the more the government is going to figure out how to use it. 
So the state agencies are actually starting to use these tools to find organizations that are non-compliant. They used to wait around for complaints. Now they're able to bump two databases against each other and go out and issue cease and desist letters and all kinds of things. So uh, that's also sort of hurting folks right into our arms where we have the cheapest, the best, and the easiest solution out there. You know, through your career before this, there were probably moments of advice that stick with you. And is there one single piece of advice that you received somewhere in your career that you brought forward into this company that you thought was remarkable or highly influential when you did this business? Yeah, um, <laughs> I think... If, if being a copywriter, uh, I, I did issue advocacy proudly for the free market for years. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, the Internet's a product of that, right? And all, all this innovation is a product of, of uh, our free market and our, our freedoms. Um, I think if I were to boil something down, it wasn't put to me this way, but in, not in so many words it was put to me by people. Overestimate the capacity of other people and underestimate their understanding. And if you can do those two things, I think I just made that up. Actually, well, it works. But, uh, but so many other principles that I've been taught by great, great people that I was blessed to be uh, blessed to be trained by or instructed over the years, um, especially in copywriting. I mean, you learn a lot about human nature when you have to take something and sort of dumb it down. And, and it's not dumbing down as an insult, but people are busy and they don't have time to process high-minded, you know. 50 cent fancy vocabulary words. They need you to break it down for them real simply. So I look at it that I overestimate their capacity to change the world, but I underestimate their level of understanding. And what that does, it keeps me focused on spoon feeding the fact that they can do something in such simple terms that when they're in between the PTA meeting and the sick kid and the job or the business and the car repair, and I got, I've got them for just a few seconds, I get through to them. Yes, you can change the world. And yes, it is simple. And it's these three bullets. Uh, another great, great quote that I run my life by, uh, in communication at least, and even in sort of this understanding people thing, is Mark Twain's famous quote. And he says, uh, I sat down to write a short letter, but I didn't have time, so I wrote a long one instead. And what that means is that if you have the heart and the love and, and you want to take care of people, you have to think about how you approach and communicate to them. Because the shorter that you want it to be and the more crystal clear that you want to express an idea or a product or a solution or anything, or even just you know, how much you care, is it takes extra time to boil that down into the most meaningful little package that you can. But it's a way of supremely honoring that person as far as their time and their attention and all the other things, because there's only one thing in this world that we cannot replace, and it's not money, it's that time. You know, as I, as I think about, um, I got to talk to a lot of folks in, associated with your company, and you know, back to the, the underdog, you know, to conquering the world stuff, clearly smoothing the path for 501c3 formation and compliance. You know, for the, for the folks out there, that have a 501c3, and maybe they're uncertain whether they're compliant or not. What should they do? Should you know? Should they reach out to your company? Reach out to a website? How do they reach out to you guys to figure out what they're doing if they need your help? Yeah, they can go to freecompliancecheck.com, and 
that'll just bring them to, again to a page on our website, but it's easy and catchy to remember, freecompliancecheck.com. And we will ask them a few questions on a form, have a quick conversation with them, whether that's online or, or just somebody jumping on the phone and assess whether what they're doing is you know, completely compliant or not. Um, you know, there's a book out there, Seven Felonies a Day, and it explains how every single American cannot walk out their front door without being in variance with something. You know, they're doing <laughs> that's their, just, their mailbox is too many inches away from the sidewalk. I mean, there's something going on. Um, <laughs> and I, I say that in jest. Our job is to help people r- reach a level of, of compliance and reach a level of professionalism that is appropriate and commensurate with the level of their organization. If everyone tried to get insured to 100% to where they'd never have any liability of anything, no one would ever start a business or really leave the house. So if there's a battle, which there often is between what we would like and the budget that we have available, we have a plan to navigate that Straits of Gibraltar for people so they can get compliant, commensurate, and appropriate for the stage of their organization without breaking their bank. Because our goal is to not have any of these obstacles prevent them from getting help to the people that need it. We were, I think, chatting earlier, and you know, we've talked about compliance, we've talked about filing, we've talked about that perhaps one of the things um, many nonprofits have challenges with is board issues and board formation and board training. Do you see uh, Foray of your company in helping the nonprofits figure out how to do fundraise because many of them have challenges in fundraise. Absolutely. Yeah, I've raised millions of dollars for nonprofits over the years. We teach that in a course right now. And that's how to take a small list of people right inside your Rolodex and uh, bring them from raising their hand with a little bit of interest in your organization to writing a five fifty dollars or $100,000 check, right? Maybe putting you in their will or all these things that philanthropists do. Um, And there are philanthropists created every single day by people who invested wisely. I literally know people who saved paychecks their whole life and just put it into a mutual fund and are now leaving that legacy to a series of nonprofits because their kids have plenty of cars and their college paid for and, and their starter home. So our job is to continually uncover the next biggest roadblock, the next biggest speed bump in life for nonprofits and flatten that out for them. So we will never run out of products and services to introduce. We are constantly in touch uh, with our customers. I, I, you know, Even being the CEO and, and with all the growth, some of my favorite time that I spend every week is when I get to hop on the phone with a customer or a prospect who's thinking about working with us and I, I just say, you know, thank you. You know, they thank me for being on the phone with them. And I say, no, I didn't get into this so that I could sit up in some corner office. You are doing the work on the ground, helping the flood victims of Harvey or whatever the, the problem of the day is. And it's a great honor for me to learn from you how people are doing that most effectively today. Um, and so we will always have problems to solve in the nonprofit sector, I, I guess. Um, and you know something I want to add to is you look at trends, right? Um, and, and you look at books written by people like Malcolm Gladwell who sort of examine these bigger macro trends in the world. And one of the ones I see is that nonprofits and for-profit, uh, the whole idea of nonprofit and for-profit are sort of converging. 
Because if you think about things being commoditized in the world, right now anything, and in the future even more, can be reverse engineered or uh, people can just sort of deconstruct and figure out how to build a laptop, how to build this product, how to, how to have a robot make a table nicer than at Ikea. You know, people are going to be knocking things off more than ever nowadays. The value isn't there. The value is in a company relating closely with human values. And so um, for-profits are being forced because of commoditization to go, hey, we get, we help Harvey victims. Mm-hmm. We do this. We, you know, They're having to associate themselves with a cause to show that they're a responsible corporate citizen and they're not just throwing off a bunch of cash to investors. Investors are very involved in cause and impact right now, right? So that's where the for-profit world is being driven, whether kicking or and screaming, dragged, or being driven by genuine want to have a bigger meaning in life than money, they're going in the direction uh, of, of sort of a, a symbiosis between the two. Meanwhile, if you look at nonprofits, you can't just as a nonprofit go around with your handout and hit up a mailing list and ask for, put the picture of the doggy and kitty on there and expect people to write checks. People are online looking to see the pictures of the children that you're helping, looking at the metrics. Um, there's, there are all kinds of studies right now. Philanthropists, even small uh, you know, investors and philanthropists, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been helping them learn how to measure the ROI of the nonprofit gift mm-hmm. they're giving. Mm-hmm. So everything is becoming more sophisticated. And that means nonprofits are being driven, whether kicking and screaming or by a genuine you know, want to, for more ROI, into the same space as the for-profits, where they're having to use more business practices and adding that to the cause, whereas for-profits are adding cause to the business practices. And I believe this is Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Two great tastes that take, taste great together go a lot farther and that you're going to see companies associated with cause more and more all the time to where it's almost imperceptible which is which. And you can see nonprofits is running like a business and using lean startup methodologies and other things to show that they have as much impact as the nonprofit down the street that's trying to solve the same problem, or the market will decide. Well, the donor's going to go that way. Yeah. I mean, you know, if Absolutely. you take 10% goes to the, the cost and 90% goes to overhead and whatever. Yeah, uh, people versus, find out. Versus the other way around. You yep. go, I didn't point my money to, to help them have a bigger car. You know, um, for you in looking at the regulatory realm of nonprofits, how do you see the regulatory burden over the next three to five years in the nonprofit space? You know, I think there is a genuine desire on the part of many um, individuals in the regulatory, you know, world. Um, you know, not hurt whether it's not killing the golden goose or not hurting uh, people who want to do a good thing. I've talked with many secretaries of state. Great example. They want to reform some of these onerous laws where a nonprofit has to go out and do the same thing 50 in 50 states um, on paper. I mean, you can't even, you're still downloading, you know, Word docs and PDFs from these, these agencies. There's a genuine individual response to that, that they want to make that better. But when they go to the National Association of Secretaries of State and ancillary agencies, which I just made that up, but when they go to these big confabs, there is a lack of ability to work together. And we see it in Washington now where um, some very good ideas don't make it 
even among parties that want something to happen because everyone has a different idea about how it should be instituted. And our sort of empowerment mentality is, let's just do this work for the bureaucrats by helping our customers do an end run around these processes so that the regulations don't stop people in their tracks and they can go off and do what they do. And then whatever happens in the regulatory world, it's okay and we're still making a difference to the people we care about in our communities. I don't see regulations decelerating. We've only seen an increase in regulations regardless of any lip service that we're getting from agencies and, and um, the, you know, the, the folks that are, are making up these rules. Because on one hand, you have get tough on crime, fraud prevention. We're going to have these folks, these nonprofits registered out the wazoo. Um, and that is competing with let's make things easier for them. And at the end of the day, there are probably some criminals in boiler rooms who 10 years from now will be doing exactly what they're doing now. Yeah, I think, you know, there'll be one or two poster children that'll yep. go out there and muddy the water for the yep. folks trying to do good work. That is what happens. It's a few bad eggs. Um, we have done a lot of 501c3s. And as you heard our staff say, if we see something that's not an exempt activity, it doesn't fit a nonprofit, then we let them know you're better off being an LLC or you're better off being a trade group 501c6, which by the way, we can help you with. But very few people, if ever, I don't know of a single case where somebody called and all they were trying to do was be greedy and hide some money from the government through their nonprofit. Although because you people watch the news and are influenced, unfortunately, by the media who sensationalizes those cases, you do have a few bad eggs causing a lot of regulations and a lot of sort of coming down and heavy enforcement on not only the nonprofit sector, but virtually everywhere else you look in life. I mean, my kids, my kids, my kids do lemonade stands and uh, they're, they're going to keep doing it uh, until they pry their cold dead hands off their lemonade glass, whether or not you're allowed to because some bureaucrat <laughs> in the city doesn't want them to. You know, we're coming to a close here, and I was thinking a parting piece of advice to somebody that's considering a SaaS-type startup company and perhaps a parting piece of advice to either a current nonprofit or somebody that has an idea that wants to form a nonprofit. Absolutely. And, you know, being in the nonprofit sector, part of the problem and part of the, one of the major differences between for-profit and nonprofit person person that associates with one or the other is a nonprofit person generally doesn't like to ask for money and is not sure how to translate the value of what they're doing into the ask of, of the donor. That's a big problem in the nonprofit world. And I think um, one of the things that people that are starting a, a SaaS company, starting a uh, not a not a nonprofit, but a for-profit to solve a problem, right? That's mm -hmm. the guy that invented the washing machine probably didn't want to see uh, family, you know, time and resources of his, his poor spouse down at the river with the washboard. These things do make people's lives better. Don't underestimate the value of what you do, and the way to gauge it is to ask for it. I started doing this for just a couple hundred dollars, and then I raised my prices so that I could give better service. So one of the best pieces of advice I ever heard was charge enough to serve outrageously. And you'll find a medium where people are more than happy to give us less than $1,000 for what they would pay a lawyer three to five to 10 for um, and be confident that 
you're going to, and, and, and deliver, you're going to deliver five or 10x value for that customer. And by doing that interaction, you'll create a company. So many people are afraid to expose their idea to, you know, the weather mm-hmm. uh, and, and people's opinions and everything that they hide them away and they probably, you know, die a life of regret that they didn't invent that thing or didn't roll out that idea. So um, even if it's a side hustle, it's part-time, my advice is to go find someone who needs that service and as quickly as possible stop volunteering for it and start charging for it. And you will very quickly find whether or not you have a business. Step two, do not do what I did and take too long to find someone who is your personality opposite to go systematize that thing. Or if you're the engineer, go find the social butterfly and get a co-founder because I ignored that advice. Uh, and David Cohen, who I, I know from Techstars, Techstars has a, a very successful incubator and they require, almost require you to have a co-founder. And I used to think that was stupid until I got a co-founder and 10x my revenue. So it's very important to find people who are complimentary and not like you uh, along the lines of Michael Gerber's book, The E-Myth. We tend to hang around with and hire people that are like us and it destroys people's companies and ideas. We have to get people who are complementary to us and different from us. And that's what makes the world a beautiful place, isn't it? You know, I think this has been fun, you know, and I think about making a difference and the company makes a difference. So I really appreciate you taking the time and allowing your ninja crowd take the time (laughs) and visit today. So thanks very much, Christian. Thank you so much, Bob. I really appreciate having us on and uh, look forward to staying in touch. You betcha.